Welcome to Soul Conversations, where three Korean adoptees that talk about anything and everything through an adoptee lens. I'm Shanae. I'm Kara. And I'm Benny. And this is Season 3, Episode 4. Today we have a special guest, Andy Burden. Andy is a creative currently based out of LA and directs, leads, design, interactive, and animation projects for clients across the gaming and entertainment space. You might know some of his work including the creative direction for the second launch of Tyler Blevins, aka Ninja's world first product partnership with Adidas Originals, the art direction and design behind Fox's X-Men series, The Gifted, and he was the creative and design director behind Pepsi's Super Bowl 52 ad and other brands such as Lexus, Pixar, Disney, Warner Brothers, Dodge, and much more. You can find him on Twitter, at Burden, and Instagram, at Andy Burden and his personal portfolio at Burden.co. Welcome, Andy. Hey, everybody. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Welcome. That was one hell of an intro. Perfect. Podcast adjourned. (laughs) Exactly. First of all, the most important question, uh, what's in your glass tonight? Oh, boy. I am a, uh, as I like to joke around with my wife, kind of an Orange County housewife. I like a nice buttery Chardonnay. So that's what I'm drinking this evening. It's wonderful. I love it. Benny likes to chug his straight from the bottle. So you'll get to to check that out throughout the show for sure. Haven't, yes. haven't we haven't we all? <laughs> Andy, we were just talking that you were uh in Colorado for a bit, living in Denver. And um that's near dear to at least Shanae and my heart since you live in Colorado. Now you're out in LA. Tell us a little bit about how you got into biz and now that you're working with some major players in the industry and in, in gaming. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, uh, no, great question. Yeah, and again, it's uh, a pleasure to be here uh, amongst great company here. I've obviously been able to, uh, you know, be a, be a fan of the podcast and connect with everybody. And it's nice to be in good company to where I, you know, can talk about these things and and uh, speak freely about, you know, adoption and, and sort of the... Um, Emotional ups and downs and and trials and tribulations. Uh, but more to the to kind of answer your question there. Yeah, um, currently live in Los Angeles, California. This is actually my wife's and my second time living in California. I was born in Seoul, South Korea, in 1987. Uh, was I guess relinquished for adoption immediately, and then was adopted at eight months of age to uh, a couple that lived in Vancouver, Washington. Uh, my mom and dad. And so I grew up in Vancouver, Washington till I was about 12. And then my dad's job moved us to Boise, Idaho. Um, I have an older sister, Jenny, who's two years older. She's also a Korean adoptee born in Seoul. We are not uh, biologically related at all, but obviously, you know, growing up with her my entire life, you know, she's my sister. So grew up in Idaho, kind of, you know, spent most of my formative years there. Uh, you know, middle school, high school, college, uh, and then moved to Los Angeles in 2011 after school. Got my degree in graphic design, came down and worked in an entertainment advertising agency called Ignition uh, straight out of school. I uh, was there and here in LA for about a year and a half and then was like, you know what? I want to try something different. I want to chase mountains and beer. And uh, I hear that Colorado uh, has those in great abundance. Uh, mm-hmm. So moved out there. My now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, I met in Los Angeles. Uh, we started dating and then I moved to Colorado. She moved to Panama City, Panama and started to work for the Smithsonian's Tropical Research Institute down there. So we did the long distancing for a year. Uh, and after that, she moved up to Colorado and then we kind of settled there for a little bit. Definitely took advantage of all the mountains and all the beer that were available there. Uh, Love Colorado, great relationships there, uh, great friendships, you know, met some great people out there. And eventually, I, I, I think right around 2017 or so, I'd, I'd kind of reached a point in my career as a, uh, a designer and kind of an art director within entertainment and advertising, working on enter- uh, advertising campaigns for movies, linear cable TV shows, video games, etc. Um, as a you know, kind of an agency partner to these publishers and to these uh, producers of these uh, of these movies, and loved living in Colorado. And then eventually, it was like you know, entertainment really is uh, kind of a sector that, for all its ups and downs and its perils, I really enjoy working in, and would love to be able to uh, have the opportunity to come back to Los Angeles, uh, where there really is, um, you know, work wise, especially in advertising, there's no place like it on earth, especially if you want to work in proximity to entertainment. 
Um, and so, you know, kind of had the draw to come back to Los Angeles. So we uh, actually got married in October 2017 and then moved two weeks later back to Los Angeles. And it was nice to come back to a familiar place where we had both friends and family and, and colleagues and things like that. Uh, and just kind of do the, I guess, do the opposite of what a lot of people did. A lot of people would move from Los Angeles to Denver, which we did. And then not a lot of people go back to Los Angeles. So a lot of people were kind of like, what are you doing? Like, why would you move from, you know, a lower cost of living and fresh air and mountains of beer and stuff like that, and then come back to Los Angeles. And I was like, you know what? We both love the work, the industries that we're in. We both love the work. Um, obviously love the, uh, you know, the diversity and, and culture that is Los Angeles here. Uh, so that was certainly a big draw for us. So we've been back here for uh, about four years now and I'm um, still working in advertising in very close proximity to gaming. I'm a, currently a creative director at an agency called Thinking Box, uh, and our primary client that my team works on is Riot Games. So working on stuff for League of Legends, Valorant, Teamfight Tactics, Wild Rift, you know, Riot's entire suite of uh, entertainment IPs that are super popular. So that's kind of where we're at. And again, now kind of being in the, I'm going to say the middle of my career, but now being somebody that's, you know, kind of a 10, 11 years on in my career, kind of transitioning the work that I'm doing from being more... I guess, or excuse me, a little bit less hands-on of a, kind of a designer director and more uh, overseeing and mentoring uh, other designers as they kind of begin their careers and kind of passing on and imparting a lot of the knowledge that I've been very fortunate enough to kind of beg, borrow, and steal over the past decade or so working in the industry. Awesome. So I, I want to do a little bit of icebreaker here and want to give the viewers a peek in. What advice would you give to anyone who is trying to make a long-distance relationship work? Boy, um, you know, I, that's a very good question. Uh, certainly, there were definitely doubters, I think, in both of our, both my and, and my then girlfriend's hemisphere. So I, I would be remiss or I would be lying if I was saying that I, I didn't have my own hesitancies about a long distance relationship. You know, I think what made our relationship so seamless and, and so easy was that technology has reached a point to where we can be you know, in constant contact with each other, um, all the time. Um, you know, I, I, with my wife working full time and me working full time, we'd be on Gchat during the day, we would get home, we would hop onto Skype and we would watch each other, you know, make our own respective dinners. We would talk, we tried to watch movies and things like that. It was very difficult to do because of the difference in, um, tech infrastructure or like connectivity, I will say internet connectivity between Panama City and and Denver but we you know we had the ability to stay in kind of constant contact and then um, we saw each other six times over the course of a year I flew down to Panama twice she flew to Denver twice we met for a wedding in Indiana once and then we did her birthday in Jamaica we like kind of met in the middle um, so it was always kind of giving ourselves something to to look forward to and being that both of us had just moved to a new city for each of us and we could go off and kind of enjoy our days at work and build relationships with colleagues and friends and things like that. And then be able to come back to each other and be able to share, like, I went and explored this new part of town or this new thing or this new restaurant, or I did this with my colleagues or friends. We were both kind of experiencing a new city respectively, but together. So yeah, I think uh, for us, I, I don't know if I have any, there's any secrets or anything that I can impart onto anybody, but uh, I think for my now wife and I, we, you know, obviously got along very, very well. And uh, we're very, very close to each other and loved each other. And it just made long distance, not really, a, a, I guess, a, a hindrance or a blocker to our relationship. It was just kind of a burden that or a, a semi blocker that we just found ways to get around uh, using the technology and, and obviously using the basis of just a good relationship and wanting to have each other in each other's lives and share these, these sort of unlocking and these findings of new things in each city. So. There's so many parallels there, Andy. I'm also I've also went through a, a long distance relationship, and I have a tie to Panama, strangely enough, because my best friend and um, roommate in so my sophomore year of college was from Panama. So I've actually been to Panama more than any other place in the world, more than Korea. I'm working on inversing that number, but uh, yeah. that's so crazy just to hear some of the similarities. I know um, Shanae and Benny got to go through this since you know they've hosted the podcast, but since I'm new this season just hearing people's stories and the similarities, it's like shocking a little bit. Like the whole time he's telling a story, I'm like, holy shit. Oh, like I went through something similar. Yeah, that's like the same thing. It's the same like geographical story. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to hear, you know, you, you you talked a lot about geography in your intro, I think by design, because it's so um, indicative of who we are. How would you say 
your geography and your coming out of the fog journey kind of lined up or did they? Because I, I remember reading in your bio that you wrote that you didn't really have an interest in the kind of the Korean adoptee journey, if you'll have it, until you were later an adult. So I'm wondering if those two things had any correlation, the geography and the, the, mm-hmm. the coming out of the fog. Yeah. I, you know, I think uh, the more that I had become connected with the adoptee community and the opportunity to hear a lot of people's stories about, you know, I was born here and these are the circumstances of my adoption and where I grew up and sort of the, uh, the cultural connective tissue that I have both to the country of my birth, as well as the country of where you grew up, right? Uh, of your upbringing and, and finding out that there are just so many similarities uh, between us or you know, between adoptees. And as far as geography and, and, you know, how I feel like maybe that sort of affected my, uh, where I am in kind of my adoption journey, if you will, is, you know, I had a similar upbringing to a lot of people, you know, I, um, both my parents are white, they had experienced in their kind of mid to late thirties, some fertility issues with my adoptive mom. And, and at that point they had turned kind of to adoption and was like, this is something that, um, you know, we just want to have kids that we can love and that we can, you know, pour ourselves into. And it was something they were extremely open to from what they have told me and, you know, grew up with a lot of the same things that all of us did going to school, having birthday parties, going to the water park, family vacations and road trips, going to grandma and grandpa's house and having sleepovers. You know, I am eternally just in awe of what my parents were able to provide for me in many ways, um, while not necessarily providing kind of the, I want to say the sustenance or kind of the basis of, of Korean culture to me, but what they were able to provide for me, I, you know, I had a great upbringing. My life was a cakewalk. And, and for that, you know, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. And so, you know, having the geography of kind of growing up in the Western part of the United States, going to public school, having the opportunity to, you know, go to a you know public high school, go on to college. You know, I, I, I think it provided me with a base of like, uh, really of gratefulness and gratitude in many ways. You know, I, I know I talk to a lot of adoptees that are of the standpoint that we should work against this idea that only your adoptive parents could have provided you with a good life, right? Like that's a narrative that I think we hear a lot is you hear from people, oh, well, you it sound like you hit the jackpot with your adoptive family. You should be grateful, things like that. It's like, why would you, oh my gosh, that's so amazing for you. Congratulations. Um, and I, I, I think despite the sort of circumstances of my upbringing, which again was, was wonderful. I had, you know, had a great childhood and still have a very close relationship with my sister and my parents and, and things like that. Um, I tend to reject the notion that that was the only possible way to facilitate a, a quality life. Right. And I think the more that I talk to other adoptees and, and hear about their points of view, however, contrasting to my own that it provides me with, with kind of that, that view of like, okay, here's kind of how geography may have affected my perception of these things or my POV. Um, and in no way do I view my POV as the right way, of course. Um, it's just what it is. Um, and, and so I, I try to use that kind of knowledge and that upbringing to make sure that I listen to a lot of other people and their upbringings, however contrasting it may be, like I say, and really kind of ground myself. And I had like, I had a great upbringing, like a lot of adoptees did. I know that a lot of people didn't, and it was, it has been and continues to be very difficult. So really that kind of folds into just kind of a bigger practice of allyship that I'm trying to do more broadly across a lot of different topics and sort of cultural and societal issues. But yeah, hopefully that was kind of a a long-winded way to answer uh, kind of, you know, the geography question there. But yeah, that's that's kind of my my standpoint on it was, you know, a position of gratitude, but also recognition of here's a an opportunity to make sure that I can be grateful for where I came from, but also listen to uh, to other people and, and, uh, you know, hear their stories as well. I love that. I love that you really honor that duality and just the empathy um, and the allyship. And I think it's a great segue into today's topic when you brought up, you know, the diversity of adoptee narratives. And today we're talking about adoption in the media um, and how adoptees are portrayed, whether we feel like we are portrayed accurately or if we feel like we need more representation. We can really kind of dig into that a little bit. If I were to ask mm-hmm. each of you what comes to the front of your mind when I say adoptees in the media or adoption in the media? Is there a particular 
example that you gravitate towards? Is there a particular feeling that you have? I can hop in. Um, that's kind of what I was doing as as I prepped this week was I started to think, what are all my examples of adoption in the media that I was going to bring to the forefront? And my first reaction was, there wasn't like one that jumped out to me because I'm like, okay, they're, they're in like case in point, we're not really represented much. And there's not really a general example. I think the next obvious one for me that came to mind was this story of like orphan Annie, right? Like I think that's one of the more like broadly accepted across America. People know like orphan Annie and it is very much that, um, that story of, you know, gratitude and destiny. I mean, that's like a word I'm definitely thinking about Andy, like hearing you talk this idea of like deconstructing destiny, right? Like we've all been told that you were destined, this was your destiny. And it's like, you don't realize how much power that takes away from you when you put your entire fate into destiny. So I love this notion of like, I'm taking some of that back. Side note, getting the drinking, y'all, it's 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 doing something for me. So I think Orphan Annie came to mind. So this kind of like grateful story, of course. And then just recently, I was watching Cruella, the new make with Emma Stone on the plane. And I hope it's not like a spoiler alert, but there's, I'll, I'll say there's tones of adoption, wink, wink, nudge, nudge within the movie. Mm-hmm. And it it did finally remind me, I think, of the stereotype that comes best to mind is this like outcast, kind of troubled kid, you know, doesn't really follow the rules, but, you know, has this brilliant, dark, you know, kind of secret, like we're always somehow like there's something special about us, even though we're not special. And then it comes to find out that like, you know, you're somehow separated and that's the thing that made you special. And then that became like your heroic journey was to reunite yourself with your birth family. And that's like the happy ending to the, to the story of the adoptee that turned out to actually be the hero of the story who finally had their resolve by closing that void in their story. Um, Both of which Make me angry. Yeah. If I think about like those are the two, um, those are my two um, choices. I'm either this like charity case that was saved or I'm this outcast that's like angry and a rebel, but yet has a good heart deep down. I'm like, I guess there's some truth in that. Maybe that's why I'm annoyed by it. But there's also some like, that's not really great. I don't have like a lot of options. Mm-hmm. What about you guys? Yeah. You know, I, I, it's, it's interesting you bring up those examples of, um, yeah, like Little Orphan Annie and and um, stories like that, and, and it's it's funny because it it reminded me of maybe this is you know the, the term like coming out of the fog. I think it's still something I'm trying to figure out. Like, okay, wait, what is? Have I come out of it? Have I not? Like, it differs for everybody, right? Like, it's a very nebulous sort of a, a, a vernacular. But it, you know, when I was actually living in Colorado, like you know, I was an adult at the time. I was in my late twenties. You know, I'm 34 now. So yeah, I was in my late 20s, right? And I was having a discussion with a friend there and I was kind of telling her my life story. And and she had uh, very politely, to completely her credit, she had said, okay, well, you know, um, well, tell me about your family. You know, where were you born? And um, okay, so you were born at this particular date and then you were adopted here. Where were you between the time you were born and the time you were adopted? And then it wasn't until that moment where I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I guess the technical term for what I was was an orphan. And I didn't yeah. get it. And I didn't yeah. understand that, right? Like, you know, the the what's in my very limited case file that I, you know, my parents got. And what my parents had told me was like, well, yeah, you were in a uh an adoption agency or adoption center, right? Like they didn't say, oh, you were in an orphanage, right? And it so it wasn't until I was in my late 20s when I realized, like, oh, I guess by the you know common vernacular probably narrow down and distill you and kind of label you as an orphan right so it's it's interesting you bring those up because now i start to think about like other stories here about adoption in the media that also have those elements right like the first one i thought of and i'm going to absolutely butcher the name and help me if <laughs> if you can what was the disney movie with the cats where uh what is it oliver and the like, why should oh, I worry? You know, that's Billy Jolson. Yeah, that one. There was also <laughs> Anastasia. Oh, Anastasia. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a big one. 
Yeah. So it wasn't until I like, again, kind of had this moment as an adult and then I was yeah. able to reconnect those sorts of pieces. <laughs> it was like, oh, like I grew up watching Disney movies. I watched this movie. Uh, I watched the Anastasia. I was like, oh, they're actually actual parallels, however loose they may be uh, to my own story. So, you know, those are really the only kind of poignant examples that I can I can think of. I think uh, I had a very uh, sort of a similar um, reaction. What you had was like, what stories? <laughs> There's not, there's not that many, or if there are yeah. now, they've been mm-hmm. kind of packaged into a, you know, commoditized and kind of packaged into a nice little box that can be wrapped up in a 90 minute Disney movie or this or that or whatever, you know, it's, it's, there's so much nuance to the story that is untold, but for, to create this element of like palatability for larger global audiences, specifically Western audiences those stories often get sort of condensed and packaged down into again, what can be digested in, in a, a kid's movie for Disney, you know? So um, yeah, great, great question. Those are the only two kind of examples that I can think of as, as far as representation of adoption in, in the media. Shanae, Benny, do you guys have things that come to mind when you think of that? I almost want to pass over to Shanae because uh, I'm kind of, you know, uh, dovetailing off of what you both said is that I really can't think of too much off the top of my head either. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, I kind of vividly remember um, those PSAs on TV as a kid. Um, maybe they were kind of like the more you know type of things where mm-hmm. uh, adoption was seen as like, you're saving. You oh, know, like the infomercials? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. That that counts. It's in the media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like we basically got aired after like the Sarah McLaughlin commercials, like they, they ran in the same (laughs) slot. You know, I think that shows you how it was viewed by the general population. Yeah. No, I, Mm -hmm. I, I I would, yeah, I would, I think now that you say that Benny, yeah, now I, I think I can, I can remember it's all coming back now. (laughs) Like, okay, actually, yeah, we were represented here and here and at this time slot on PBS and this Disney movie (laughs) and that's it. Shanae, yeah, do you notice yeah. it now that you're like a mom and you're watching like the content with different eyes? Yeah. So initially when I thought about it, you know, kind of to relevant pop culture, right? Because right now as we're recording this, there has been sort of this uh, surge, I feel like, of at least transracial adoptee identity in media, or at least stories are being picked up um, and kind of mainstreamed. But I through kind of like the mom lens have noticed a lot more through like children's books and children's literature as I'm screening things for Clara. Like I think about, there are so many stories with animals and this idea to teach kids sort of where they belong or more specifically to whom they belong. Um, But you have the book, Are You My Mother?, um, where, oh you know, God. there's this duckling that goes around and, you know, yeah. or, or, I snored and says like, are you my mom? Are you my mom? And the whole conclusion is like, you know, the mother is the one that looks like, um, yeah, the that's and like Stella <laughs> Luna when Stella Luna gets lost and she flies and she kind of assimilates amongst the birds and she tries to perch upright instead of upside down. Stella Luna's a bat, if you don't know. Um, and like the mom bird comes and says, you know, you are not a bird. Like you don't, you're a bat, you're different. And literally kicks Stella Luna out of the bird's nest. And, you know, finally Stella Luna is reunited with her mom bat, um, and things like that. And I, that's where I've noticed it more. And I don't know if it bothers me that it's, those stories are depicted through animals or if I feel like that makes it more sensitive or more like child appropriate or accessible. I don't know. It's just those are the areas that I've been really noticing it um, and honing in on it. And even to the Disney notes, Hannah Lee mentions it in her book about Kung Fu Panda and how Poe is adopted. And it's like, (laughs) what is it with all these animals being, you know, adopted or taken in by other animals? And it's just, I think it bothers me because I realize that the age group, those books are marketed towards is so young. And if I think about myself is, you know, a four or five, six year old reading those books, 
And if, you know, depending upon how self-aware a child is or how openly their family talks about their adoption, how potentially triggering or traumatic those narratives could be. Now I'm upset. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so upset. I I forgot about all of those things. And you're right. Like, that makes me feel a certain way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go back next episode for me to name that emotion. But (laughs) I feel a certain way after hearing that, Shanae. I'm curious to know, um, I'm going to go back to those PSAs that I was thinking about. You know, a lot of the the people in, in those commercials and PSAs um, look similar to the people that are adopting them. Um, but I think everyone on this call knows that uh, being a transracial uh, or transnational adoptee, growing up in a very different culture that looks like our own potentially, where do we fit in into that spectrum? And is there anything that we want to discuss about, you know, how we fit in with the larger adoption story? And is there something else out there that is missing? That's the story is not being told on our part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I think the age range of adoptees that I have spoken to has, has typically always kind of been within the kind of early to mid twenties to late thirties, early forties range. And I try to, to like, think about like, okay, if that particular age range is in mind, how can, what does that correlate to birth year? What was going on during those years? And what, what sort of the research that can be done that would help quantify or explain why there's this segment of adoptees that are really just kind of in this range, right? Like I, I haven't personally, um, I don't know about you guys, like met adoptees that are either much older than that range or much younger than that. And so going back and doing kind of research and, and finding that at least um, in Korea, reaching the height of transracial adoptions happening right in kind of the early to mid to like in the 80s, essentially, you know, that's kind of where it reached its, its, uh, its height. And then as we moved kind of into the nineties and early two thousands, those, those kinds of adoptions kind of dropped off. So here's this group that is now as adults, you know, fully formed adults with, you know, careers and lives and jobs. And, and I will use the term loosely just for myself, you know, mostly in control of their emotions and, and, uh, you know, have the wherewithal to, to understand the, you know, the nuances of their situations are now being significantly more vocal about their experiences that are helping, like we're doing here, kind of tying what is our, this is a, here's a group that you may not have known was a part of your school, your church group, your sports team, whatever. And now we're at a rage when we can actually go back and be like, hey, we've been here all along and here's the ways that we've been represented, right? Like we've, like I said, maybe been distilled down to the, you know, the nice Disney movie or the the more you know PSA or the, you know, the this or that or whatever. And here's how we've been represented. Is that the right representation for us? Is there a better way to tell this story? And how does that fold into the larger API story in Western media, right? That is right now we're seeing a huge, huge influx or a huge kind of crest of, I don't want to say crest, hopefully it's not a crest, hopefully like big surge in that wave uh, of, of seeing, you know, API representation across the political spectrum, across the entertainment spectrum uh, from, you know, movies, TV shows, books, et cetera. Um, so it's an interesting uh, thing to think about. Uh, for sure, is like how does how does the adoption story? How has that been represented historically? Now that adoptees are adults and they can speak for themselves and think for themselves, and how does that you know where have they been represented and how does that fold into the larger API representation and kind of the surge of that that we're starting to see now in present day times? It's a really interesting question, and and hearing you talk, Andy, it makes me realize like my my perception is that within American culture, specifically looking at white adoptive parents, there's almost like a ranking, like there's almost like a status, you know, and like to your point, like the time is so relevant to a lot of our stories. And it was kind of like the hot thing or like we were like the hot new accessory. And like there was something specific about the white family with the Asian kid, right? That was like, I think put in a different category and dare I say the quote unquote better range than like the children that you see on the commercial after the Sarah McLaughlin commercial. Like there, there's definitely like a, a preference, if you will, 
of if those adoptive parents got to choose the situation, my, my assumption is, is like there was a rank, right? Mm -hmm. And I would think that us all being Korean American adoptees kind of all adopted around the same time frame, we were like the cream of the crop. I could totally be like making that narrative up in my head. I have no proof points for it. But as you started to talk about it, and because I actually rarely think, and I'm so glad we're having this conversation today, I rarely think about my adoption and my Korean adoption separate. Like they're always like one thing in my head. So even when we were like rehashing the topic today for clarity, we were like, are we talking about like Asian representation to me? Or are we talking about like adoptions? Like, no, we're talking about like adoption, like take race out of it. Like what's the narrative around adoption? And I was like, wow, like I don't really think about adoption as a whole. I mean, that sounds like selfish and this is maybe my moment of learning, right? Of I've got to start thinking about things outside of just the Korean American adoptee perspective. And I even started to think about like, there was a girl that I grew up with in Northern Kentucky that was like a white girl adopted by white parents. And I remember us always having like dialogue. We weren't like friends. But there was always dialogue between us. And then as I got older and started sharing my my story more publicly, we started to like sli slide into the DMs and we started to talk more intimately. And I just remember thinking like, oh, I kind of forgot about her or I never saw her as like a peer, if you will, mm -hmm. growing up because that transracial element was missing from her story. Therefore, I put this huge wedge between us. Right. When the reality is, is there was probably a lot of things that we could have chatted about. So just just an interesting observation. Yeah, no, it's it's a good point. And like even my adoptive dad, he and my aunt were both adopted as children as well. You know, he's in his 70s now. He was he's white and you know, his adoptive parents were white as well. And it wasn't something that I learned about until I was I don't know, maybe in my teens, early 20s. I never made the connection. It was never something that he really wanted to talk about until I would visit, we would visit with my aunt and she'd be like, oh, by the way, I'm doing like a birth family search and I've been able to find this half sister that lives here and connect with her and so on and so forth. And I was like, wait a minute, what, like explain what's going on here. Are you talking about me or are you talking about like, uh, right. I'm talking about you. And, and, you know, even when I talk to my parents today, you know, as much growth and as much understanding as they have very graciously kind of taken on themselves, there is differences, right? There's a difference if you are white and you are adopted by white parents you can, for lack of a better word, you can pass as their biological kids right. like that, right? Unless right. there's some like egregious, uh, I don't know, if you could just look vastly different in some ways. But even then, you know, there's 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 not going to be the same perception, right? Like right. when we are seen with our parents from day one, whether we knew it or not, people could clock and see very quickly like something is different here <laughs> than, than biological uh, kids. So- yeah, I, I I can sympathize with you in, in the sense of like, I know that we're both adopted, but there's still some differences between us, right? Like we can have some threads of things in common, but there are some things that are just not going to be the same experiences right. at all, right? And so whether that leads to kind of a lack of communication or not is, is obviously up to kind of the individual. But um, yeah, you, your story definitely reminded me of, of, you know, of my own adoptive dad that, you know, he said, well, I'm adopted too. So, you know, here are the things that I thought about. And I'm like, dad, I hear you. It's not the same, right? And he's right. very, they're very, they're overwhelmingly understanding of those things too. So, right. um, yeah, it was just kind of an interesting uh, kind of thing that popped in my head. I think it also speaks to the need for more adoptee representation because, Kara, to your point about how you knew that each other was adopted, but you didn't really talk about it. And if there was more representation on a holistic level, whether you are non translationally adopted or transracially adopted, and those conversations were not so taboo or they were more commonplace that then we could really see where the Venn diagram is, right? We would be more able to talk about those shared experiences, but also see the nuance and the differences and have the understanding or the empathy for those differences between the respective sort of camps. And I think that's why it's important, why we need more adoptee stories. I think transracial adoptee stories are sort of having a moment, which I think is great. Whether we feel like they're maybe accurately depicted, I mean, I think we all probably can agree that there are still some significant shortcomings with mm -hmm. the transracial adoptee representation that's been happening lately. But the fact that it's present, um, I'm hoping is the start of more accurate representation yeah, I, I think it is good that there is starting to be kind of that 
you know, sliver of a, a spotlight on transracial adoptees and their stories. I think one of the things that I, I think broadly about as Western culture starts to be more open, at least at this, the time of recording, right? Um, open to API representation broadly across media in movies, TV shows, books, etc. I oscillate between being like very excited about API representation across the board. I'm sure like we all are like, I, I love it, right? It's I'm here for it. I will go to the theater. I'll, you know, buy the, you know, subscription and streaming subscription so I can watch that one show, etc. And then kind of oscillate the other way about there's so much excitement around just API sort of representation in, in media in general. How do we slot in also like, hey, here's here's what you're digesting. Here's the big chunks and the big bites of API representation that you're taking. And when I say you, I mean like, you know, Western culture in general. Can you fit this in as well? Like, can you just put a little bit of this extra like sauce on top of that big bite that you're taking and that sauce being like transracial adoption uh, and adoptee stories on top of that and whether or not adding that on top will make that bite unpalatable, right? Being like, I'm already taking a huge bite already, right? Like why could I just, this is a huge bite of steak already. Okay. Like this is great, but if you put the sauce on top of it, I'm not going to be able to take a bite and swallow it. Right. So it's again, kind of oscillating between general excitement and for representation, but also cautious optimism as to whether or not it's a good time or the right time, whatever that means right. to slot in that extra little bit on top of like, you know, you're seeing all this Asian representation. Also, here's a kind of a microcosm that maybe you didn't know about that is also a part of this story. So trying to figure out what that what that palatability is going to be for Western audiences to be able to, you know, take a bite of and digest. I mean, that analogy is sitting with me. I mean, I've already had things that have happened to me that have led me to believe that they ain't ready. They ain't ready. Like I've already had it happen where people, you know, they love BTS. They love Blackpink. They love Squid Games. They hear I'm Korean. They get all excited. Oh my God. I bet you do all these Korean things at your house. I bet your mom and dad make the best food. I bet you sing all the songs at your house. And I'm like, no, actually I'm adopted. And it's like the look of disappointment on people's faces are like, oh, it's like, they were waiting to go home and like come home with me, meet their ajima, get fed a big dinner. Like that's what they were hoping for. Right. And when they hear that that's not it, that it's Ritz crackers and frozen pizzas and casseroles, they're upset. And I mean, I, Andy, I'm kind of like, the, I'm like the angry one. Right. So like, I just can't help but that feed into my pessimism of like, it's a great question. And I would say thus far, I've already had some people take a bite and it's been too much. Right. Yeah, there's there's like that immediate sort of deflation of of energy <laughs> sent your way from these people. Yeah, I I I can definitely empathize because yeah, it's it's like we can't necessarily fall back on that sort of Korean upbringing culture of being like, you know, I'm really excited about Squid Game and Red Light Green Light and Dalgona, but right. yeah. I didn't grow up doing yep. any that. Of that. I can't. <laughs> I can't scratch that itch for you, random person or friend or colleague or whatever. Like, I'm, I don't know what to, to say. And so, yeah, it's kind of like, what do you say in those situations is to diffuse or deflect that energy of this excitement of being like, I'm, you know what? You're stoked about Korean culture. Love it. That's awesome. I can't, I can't be that. Trust me. You're not that guy, pal. You know, like, it's, yeah, it's like yeah. that, right? Like, I can't, I can't scratch that itch for you. But, you know, that doesn't, that shouldn't take away uh, hopefully from the energy that people have about like, oh, well, you don't necessarily fit into this box of what I, I, I expect or think or what I'm seeing now and, and sort of filling my uh, my days with. But what is your story? You know, what what can you tell me about this that is different than the narrative that I'm being fed now by mainstream culture? So, yeah, I've 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 had similar situations from uh, pastor, you know, passerbys and colleagues and clients and things like that. And that sort of instant kind of deflation of like, oh. You can't really talk to me about these things. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. Like, sorry, <laughs> not sorry. Yeah. Kind of a thing. So, <laughs> yeah. Do you worry that it's maybe unpalatable 
A, for the reasons that you and Kara had just said, kind of in the the idea that we're not the zoo animals that they thought they were getting, but Mm. also because to truly tell the adoption story, especially the transracial adoption story in Western culture, it comes with a certain level of uncomfortability about whiteness for people. Do you think that that perhaps maybe potentially adds to whether or not people are willing or able to digest like truly transracial adoptee stories? Yeah. You know, I, I think the more people that I talk to and the more open about my adoption and just adoption in general, I, I think the reactions I usually get are just kind of one of mild confusion of like, they don't really know what to do with me. Be like, oh, like, they're like, oh, you know, talking about, uh, I don't know, talking about Squid Game or talking about, you know, going out to Korean barbecue or whatever the subject is. And they'll be like, oh, well, you speak fluent Korean. It's like, well, no. And it's, you go into this story and then you sort of tell them, like, yeah, okay, I'm adopted. Here's where I grew up. It's kind of just like, it almost feels like a conversation under sometimes because they're kind of like, oh, and like they don't, like, it's systems process. Right. They don't really know how to react from that. Right. And that if there's any kind of follow up questions after that, there's that high potential of them having to recognize like, oh, wait a minute, here's here's an Asian that doesn't fit into this box, that right. grew up maybe just like me and has sort of the you know, same upbringing and the same games, family you know, dynamics and things like that. And then it starts to bring out this question of like, well, why don't you know these things or, or you don't fit into this box or I have these expectations. And then you start to have these conversations around like, Here's the nuances of my relationships and and my upbringing, and here's where that sits with what your expectations are, right? And I, I definitely think you can start to stray into the territory of whiteness and mm-hmm. um, how tied you are to your the country of your birth and the culture and people's expectations, and um, it can definitely stray into those those realms very quickly and force people to recognize that there is a significant amount of nuance to adoptee stories that are going to be wildly in conflict with what people expect already looking yeah. at you um, and and really kind of make them check themselves about like, you know, this this idea that we're all trying to fight against, right? Which is that Asians are a monolith. Like if I see you and you look like this, you will do this, you will act this way, you will have this cultural upbringing and you will be able to be my Asian friend, my Korean right. friend. You will be able to translate when we go to Korean barbecue and I can take you here and you will be able to tell me these things and so on and so forth. And it throws those things completely out the window. And I, I don't think I've had anybody react viscerally against like, well, why don't you know this? And like prod more. It's just more of like a conversation ender. It's like, oh, well, are you Korean? You must speak Korean or you must know this or that. It's like, nope, I'm adopted. Like, well, wait, well, like, can you elaborate? It's like, oh, my parents are white. And they're like, okay. <laughs> and like, that's it. Yep. Like conversation yep. over, you know? <laughs> Gosh, like even the way you answer it, it has like such a different tone. Like for me, I'm like, I'm adopted. You know, it's like it's this this like emotional moment. But you're right. Like it doesn't have to be like that, I guess. Maybe that's just me adding the drama or whatever. But you're right. It's for the longest time. I never kept it from people. But that's where some of like the guilt and the shame came in for me. It was like I didn't want to burst the bubble. Like you were saying, like you get someone so excited. They're so excited to like connect with you over something. And I'm just like, ah, like I have to be the party pooper. Like I have to be the one to break the news. And then it's like, as soon as you hear the, like, as soon as you spring the word adoption out there, it's like people freeze up because yeah. it's like one of those topics that we've kind of strangely, like no one ever, at least to my knowledge, and maybe we're not the right um, data set to ask, but I don't think parents sit down and teach their kids about what adoption is, right? It's no. usually like, I'm sure they hear the word or they see someone in their class and they go ask and they get like, it's not like people are actively talking about adoption, but it's also not one of those things that we're taught like money, sex, politics, and drugs and whatever, like not to talk about either. So it's like when you hear it, it's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not allowed to not talk about this and ask more, but I'm also like, I feel a little awkward because this kind of gets like, this is a very personal question. And you just see people like freeze up and you see the disappointment and I think for me, that's where like the jokes started to happen and like the punchline started to happen as I was an adolescent was like, I'm going to lessen the blow of the awkwardness and me bursting your bubble by making light of the situation so we can just like move through the conversation. Yeah. 
No, I, I. So that's my new trauma unlocked for the podcast. <laughs> no, I, 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 I share it in in those feelings as well. It's like I think as people in and you know certainly Western society over the past couple of years have have experienced more racial reckonings than they ever have in history, and educating more of my non Asian friends or non POC friends about the very seemingly innocuous question of like where are you from? Right? Like, I don't know any Asian that I've ever met. That's like, that's a cool question. I love it. I love answering that every (laughs) time, right? Like everybody, every Asian hates that question. For for us, there's just this added layer to it that makes it increasingly triggering for me personally. I don't know how you guys feel. Increasingly triggering every single time I've been asked that. And it wasn't until I was an adult and a little bit more self-assured and aware and could art, you know, speak and articulate my thoughts to where I was like, you know, every single time everybody asks me that, immediately it's just like, oh, where are you from? Idaho. And that just immediately throws them off mm-hmm. step one, yeah. right? And then yeah. it's just like I've gotten to the point, for better or for worse, maybe my therapist would probably say it's for the worst, right? <laughs> of just like I they're just gonna keep asking questions until my answer fits their assumptions. And it's just gets to the point where I'm like, I'm just going to lie. <laughs> like <laughs> if I am at a, yeah. I'm, if I'm exhausted or I'm hangry or whatever it is. And I have this conversation with somebody and be like, where are you from? And I'll just be like Bay area. And they're like, okay, cool. Yeah. And they just check that box. Yeah. I don't know whether that's helpful yeah. to the narrative and I'm open to criticism on this, but uh, I definitely think there's, there's this added layer of nuance of like even innocuous questions like that that for us are different. And so it's for me, I'm trying to have, I think a little bit more patience and being like, I know that typically when I say that I'm adopted, that's like a conversation ender, but are these conversations, maybe not for in professional settings or whatnot, are these maybe teachable moments? Is there opportunities mm-hmm. there to help spread that awareness around transracial adoption and the nuances of these things? It's like, yeah, man, I know I'm Korean. I look like this but here was my upbringing, right? Um, It was very different than maybe my colleague who was uh, born and raised in Korea or grew up in a Korean household. And and so trying to pick out like, what are there, if any, teachable or educational moments that I can do that I want to take on? And do I, candidly, do I want to take them on in general? You know, is it, is the, is the burden on me to educate people Mm. about these things? And on top of trying to, especially now in today's world, trying to educate people about why things that they have long said for generations are largely offensive to Asians. Like there's it's like the burden I feel like should not be on us to do, but there are certainly times when I think about like, this is a corrective behavior. Somebody said something to me and this is a teachable moment. So I'm not going to get angry. I'm going to try to correct that behavior until like, Hey, that was offensive or like, Hey, that's really shouldn't be saying that. And here's why. Right. And, and trying to figure out where, where are those things that I can do? What, what are my tolerance levels for doing that now? Especially knowing that there is that added layer of complexity being an adoptee and not being able to fulfill those kinds of stereotypical pictures that Western culture has just had flashed before them for generations and generations of like, this is what an Asian is. This is their upbringing. This is the languages that they speak and the food that they eat, et cetera. So I'm, I'm trying. Uh, I, I will say, I don't know how everybody else feels. I'm trying to find those opportunities and it's definitely a test of, <laughs> of uh, mental fortitude and patience uh, for sure. Yeah. I have an interesting question more specifically for you, Andy. I kind of want to uh, start out like by saying like uh, the topic of global warming, when you see all these commercials or things that like, we all have a part in making sure like we curve, you know, global warming. But for me as an individual, personally, it almost feels like that task is so insurmountable. Like what can I do as a person to make a difference? Mm -hmm. And then when you look at people in media, the people who are producing, the people are writing, um, there may not be a lot of Asian representation and especially not a lot of CADs in that space who can, you know, make those critical decisions. So what do you feel could be an opportunity for those people who are in the industry to start telling those stories when, it may feel so insurmountable to get that representation from people who are on this call who may not feel like they have that power to do so. It's a very good question. And uh, 
I think my initial thought is probably one that you have seen plastered on a stereotypical platitude in a corporate office environment of like, it just takes one small step to enact change. And I am the irony of that is not lost on me. But I think that I have noticed it was like, these are just the, the, the story that I can tell is my own. The kinds of things that I can change or share are just that. They're just what I can control. And if I can better tell just 10 people that maybe look at a post or a story or look at this or that or read an email that I send out to my family, then that's good. You know, I, I can't. I can't do it all myself, right? Like one of the things that I, I joke about with my wife, whenever we come across a problem that just seems so insurmountable and just it's so much for one person, we'll constantly remind ourselves, it was like, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Just one small nibble, one small bite. And if that's the one small nibble and the one small bite that helps one person better understand your story or your POV or you know, offer a contrasting opinion to their stereotypes, then that's good. That's how it starts, right? You know, in in the wake of all of the anti-Asian violence that's happened over the past couple of years, um, and a lot, I, I have my social feed switched immediately from like memes and pictures of my dog to sharing news stories of of various attacks and you know legislation or lack of legislation within this space that we're all operating in, and just to have one or two people, old college roommates, old friends, colleagues or clients or whatever, reach out and be like, thank you for sharing this. I didn't even know this was going on. Or thank you for sharing your story. The story of your adoption is is something I've never heard before. This is really interesting. I'm like, I can't put it all on myself, but if I can help even a few people understand that there's so much nuance to the broader API story, then I can feel good about that, right? So, you know, even to, to go back to your kind of global rooming analogy. If like, if I could educate somebody like, Hey, don't throw that aluminum can in the garbage, recycle it. And here's why, because aluminum is incredibly recyclable. Like 90% of the materials are, can be recycled back into something, right? And like, Oh, cool. Thanks. I'll move that into the recycling can be like, that's all I can control, right? Like I can't get everybody to recycle, but I can at least get a couple people. And I don't know who they're going to tell or what they're going to say and go on about their life and do. But if I can help take a little bite of that elephant, one bite at a time to help enact change, educate, or provide teachable learning moments, then for me, I can feel good about that. Regarding teachable moments for adoptee representation in the media, if each of you was to give either a bite of advice or a little snippet of a teachable moment for either what you would want people to realize about adoptees in the media, what you'd want to see happen or no longer happen regarding adoption narratives in the media, what would you say? The first thing that comes to mind is the immense amount of pressure and weight of the representation of a seemingly small, but to us, probably a large group than everyone is aware of. And if it is a small once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to represent a Korean adoptee in the media, I think about what if you were to write a story and a creative brief comes up and you're, you're trying to think about this person, the main character of a movie or a book that was a Korean adoptee, what would be the storyline and what would be the outcome? I think for me, I would feel a lot of pressure to say, ooh, I'm representing a large group that is underrepresented. But to Andy, your point, I think taking it one small step at a time and understanding that we're all in this together and trying to educate and put that disclaimer out there that this is my own personal experience, but be also really rejoicing and celebrating that their voice is really being out there in the media. I think something that comes to mind for me is just like to not forget the sorrow, maybe. I don't know if I'm answering the question correctly or not, but... I think, you know, everyone is very familiar and very quick to latch on to the great love that comes into adoption. Mm. Um, But I think we often forget that the great love came out of great sorrow. And that's kind of like, it's been a very symbolic thing in my life between the Korean flag, between like Jong and Han, between this like push and pull of like love and fighting and desperation. Like it's, it's honoring the sorrow and not to leave that part out. And it would also be that, you know, kind of similar to a lot of the conversations we've had is just like 
please make it more than about our adoption. Like, Benny, I love that kind of rhetorical question. Like, if there was the brief of like, here's the here's the character, what's the story? I think everyone's immediate head is like, oh, birth search, right? Like, it's going to show this character struggling through their bully and their discrimination. And then they find their voice. And then one day they face their fears of fighting their biological parents and they do it and they go to Korea and they're reunited. And the movie ends with this kind of open-ended next chapter of I've gotten this great resolve and now I'm going out into the future with my biological family now in my heart and my adoptive family now closer than ever and we all kind of hold hands and then like a black pink song comes onto the credits, right? Like I think that's kind of how the general like movie would go. And I think that would be my other plea would be like, just please, can it be something other than that? <laughs> like, again, are we always going to be reduced to this part of our identity where if the story was written, that's the story? Like, I I, I like to think that a lot of what we're even doing here on this podcast, right, is painting that there are other storylines and there are other plot lines that can come out of our story other than that one. And that's what I'm desperate for when it comes to like the general perception or representation of us in the media and just to the general public is that like, it's a part of it. It's a very big part of it. It drives, I think, a lot of what we do, but it is not the only part of the story. Yeah, I I would corroborate and definitely agree with you on that is that so much of what not only just the broad Asian American experience has been as much as I can speak to that. Right. But also like the adoptee experience historically in the media is like, what are stories that can be condensed into an hour and a half movie with a bow at the end? Like the whole, when I think when people generally think of adoption and like, it's exactly what you say, right? It's like, they grew up in this place and the, you know, they were adopted from here and then they start a birth search and they have to struggle. And so like act two is this struggle of like finding their birth parents and their birth parents don't want to meet them. And then they go and there's this rejection. And then act three is like they're reunited. The end, roll credits, right? And for so many adoptees, that is not the reality at all. Like act one starts the same, act two starts the same. And then right. act three is like, well, they didn't find anything or they didn't find their family at all. Or maybe they found their birth family and it ended maybe terribly, right? Like, and just emotionally scarring for them, right? Like, it's, it's, I think what would benefit people is to understand that there is so much more nuance to people's lives other than what you can see in a five piece Netflix documentary or a 90 minute movie that ends well for this person, right? Or ends in a very, very common narrative of this person was saved because of where they were placed or where they were adopted. And that's it. The end. The hero is not necessarily the adoptee, but it's the parents that adopted them, right? Like I would work towards actively not wholly rejecting that narrative, but making sure that other narrative strings are told that frankly, may not end in that happy ending, that may not end with that nice bow on top, that there is so much weight to these stories that people are going to handle and tell differently that may not fit the narrative that you historically have seen in the medium. I would agree. I almost think that at this point, I don't want to say that it's like a low bar, but I think at the at the very least, I would like to see just characters who are adoptees or characters who are cads that that the story can have nothing to do with adoption do you know what i mean like i would want right. to see a rom-com yes. where the leading yes. lady or the leading man is is a cad and nobody right. needs to say anything about it but it's just that family dynamic is represented i think we see more now of multiracial families being represented right. and mm -hmm. in the same vein you know that i want to see like a romantic lead where the female character's parents are both white and she's Asian. And you don't need to say any more than that, but it's, right. and it's not about adoption, but she is nerdier, has, you know, goofs up and, and needs to figure out how to get the guy. And there's a meet cute and all that kind of stuff. Right. And yeah. she just happens to be adopted. <laughs> Maybe there's some character traits because I'm sure we all have those idiosyncrasies that are a result subconsciously of us being adoptees and, but do them so subtly that it's like, 
if you don't know, you don't know. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We and moved just on. have it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That it, yeah, it, it becomes kind of a non-factor, right? Like I think a lot of times the, the traditional sort of adoptee narrative is that adoption has put you at such a disadvantage that you mm-hmm. are one to be pitied for being in that scenario. And a story that presented an adoptee, but didn't cast them in light as being the victim of a traumatic event. Well, we all know that those scenarios exist, of course, but painting adoption or this adoptee's life as an adoptee as kind of a non-factor that is just blended so seamlessly into a wider story or a narrative or, you know, like a rom-com or an action film or this or that or whatever. Yeah. That would be just a massive win in my book. So I, I, I mm. definitely agree with you there, Shanae. Yeah, me too. I feel like there's a place for some of those documentaries and things like that. But like, just think about a very popular movie. Um, I'm thinking off the top of my head, Super Bad. What if Jonah Hill's character was the Korean adoptee, and, and and that's it? You know what I mean? A Korean adoptee who's going off to college and potentially thought he was going to room with his best friend from his hometown. Like to me, I think there's a need for that too, just to show the lives of Korean adoptees in that light and not having to be that we call it the storyline of I was born here and then I was, uh, it was raised here. And then, you know, this was my journey. I feel too, like Mm. there also could be that supplement of just having everyday nuances of a person growing up in everyday normal life. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I am hopeful. I'm so optimistic. And I, I think that we will get there, right? Like I think that as API representation continues to be woven into the larger story uh, in, in Western media and entertainment, that when it reaches a point of satisfactory saturation of like you're seeing so much representation of API individuals across the media that it is very commonplace to see them. It's not an anomaly. And it's certainly not part of a wave as uh, I think many of us may, may look at what's going on in the media now that there will be those opportunities to kind of weave in that part of the API story, which is adoption. When Western audiences become so accustomed to seeing API representation on screen that it becomes a non-factor to them, that's when I think maybe you'll see that time when adoption and transracial adoptees, that part of that story can be added into that as a a fabric or as a, a line in that very thick textile of storytelling. So yeah, I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful, right? I think right now we're taking, Western media is, again, taking those big bites right now of API representation, right? Like what I hope is that it doesn't get to a point to where it's like, okay, you got Squid Game, you got Shang-Chi. Right. You got BTS and Black League. Like <laughs> we gave you all of this stuff. Right. Like now we're done, yeah. right? Like that's what I hope doesn't happen. I, I think as we've seen is is that palatability historically has maybe dropped off at times, right? So it, it dropped mm-hmm. down. It's like people are just tired of it. And they're like, okay, we gave you all of this stuff. Like, now, now stop, shut up, right? I'm hopeful that, um, that that doesn't happen. We don't you know, necessarily experience that slump or that uh, lack of palatability. Well, I am certainly hopeful too, Andy, just knowing that there's people like you in our community that are in fields and in positions of influence that you are in because that is no pressure. Um, a part of the great um, burden that we carry is that we owe it to ourselves and to our community and everything that we touch to make sure that we're advocating for ourselves and our communities to make sure that we change those things. Like, to your point, it takes one step. It takes one creative director. It takes one marketer. It takes one person anywhere um, to to start speaking up for that. So I am also hopeful, especially coming out of this conversation. And thank you so much for giving your your time and energy to us this evening. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Well, again, yeah. thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute delight. Again, the opportunity to be able to connect with other Korean American adoptees and hear their stories and bounce ideas off of them and, and sort of nod in agreement to the things that we have all experienced, but maybe haven't been able to share in good company is an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Andy, before we let you go, what's next in your radar? Where can we find you? Do you have anything, any big projects that we can uh, watch out for from you? And what are you watching or following right now that's intriguing or fun in the Korean cat space? What's on your book list? What, what can you tell our viewers? 
Oh boy. Um, I, unfortunately, I don't know if I have any like upcoming work or projects that are of, uh, you know, high notoriety or whatnot. We're moving in towards a space, at least for the clients that I work, uh, moving towards doing work for Lunar New Year. So if you're a League of Legends player, if you pop open the League of Legends client or you play Team Fight Tactics uh, and you open that launcher, you may see some stuff that I'm working on there as we move towards Lunar New Year. As far as kind of what's on my reading list and whatnot, I'm, I have a massive backlog of books that I am reading kind of all at the same time. I kind of jump around. Currently, I'm reading Minor Feelings by Kathy Barkong, finally reading Crying an H Mark, finishing uh, All You Could Ever Know by Nicole Chung, trying to finish broader titles that are not related to adoption or, or API causes like Sapiens and uh, Homo Dose and like, uh, again, kind of a big backlog and whatnot. As far as where you can find me on on the socials listed there, uh, twitter.com slash burden, Instagram at Andy Burden, uh, certainly portfolios on there as well. I welcome any of the opportunities to connect with other API folks in general and hear their stories. Uh, certainly other CADs or other adoptees is, is always welcome. Uh, and again, it, it's been an absolute pleasure to be here and I'm glad to have three new friends that I can, that I can chat with and hopefully have another open conversation uh, with about these topics and you know, know that there's a, a really good fabric of uh, connective tissue that we can weave together here and, and share as we move forward. Absolutely. Thank you all for tuning in this week. And we can't wait to uh, talk about more exciting things in the future. And we again, thanks, Andy, so much for all of your thoughts and your contributions to this important conversation. Awesome. Thank you all. Everyone have a great day. And don't forget, you can follow us on Instagram at Soul Conversations. Or check out our website at www.soulconversationspodcast.com.